Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Coming up on this episode of the Box of Oddities, altered dimensions and how to get there. And some wild things that happened behind the scenes on movie sets. It's the Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, do we have any lasagna left? Um, there is a small piece left, yes. Cat made this delicious lasagna, and I don't know about you, but leftover lasagna is better than right out of the oven. It just, it has a chance to, all the flavors blend and mm-hmm. everything. Do you want to talk more about the flavors? It was delicious. Yeah? Yeah. That's not enough. It was very lasagna-y. I'm harmed emotionally. Cat comes in yesterday, she says, hey, you want a piece of lasagna? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I was editing, and she offered to warm up a piece, and she says, how big a piece? Uh, the size of like a deck of cards. And I said, no, probably like maybe the size of a flattened out Pop-Tart box. (laughs) So I said, deck of cards, postcard or greeting card. And then you went, I don't know, like four by six, which I'm not great at measurements, by the way. And so I figured that put an end to the discussion, but uh, I came out to the kitchen and she literally had my tape measure out. She was measuring the piece of lasagna down to a sixteenth of an inch. I did my best. And by the way, a six by four inch piece of lasagna is a lot of lasagna. That's true. It was also very delicious. Thank I you. ate every every morsel of it. So it was a multi-step process. First, I sauteed some vegetables, uh-huh. and then I roasted yeah. vegetables, and then I made a pasta sauce, and I used pre 
pre-cooked lasagna noodles because I don't understand the purpose of cooking your own lasagna noodles. Okay, and so then the layers, but then I put all kinds of seasoning in with the ricotta and then a little egg in with the ricotta and some fresh mozzarella that I shredded. Oh, it was so good. There was onion and mushroom and rosemary and parsley and kale and summer squash and zucchini and carrots and spinach. Oops, oh. I, your mic just, what a horrible thing. It just turned off by mistake. All right, I'm done. We'll be back with more exciting lasagna recipes <laughs> later in the podcast. Turn that microphone, turning itself off on nice individual people such as yourself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Hey, you remember the movie Altered States? Have yeah. you seen that? Uh, I've seen parts of it. All right. It's a it's a 1980 American science fiction slash horror film uh, directed by Ken Russell based on the novel of the same name. The plot revolves around a brilliant but eccentric scientist named Edward Jessup, who is played by William Hurt. Uh, he becomes obsessed with studying altered states of consciousness using sensory deprivation and hallucinogenic drugs Mm -hmm. as he continues with his experiments he begins to experience intense and disturbing hallucinations which which lead him to question his own sanity and uh, he becomes increasingly detached from his wife who struggles to understand his work and the changes that he's undergoing it's a really great movie and i haven't seen it for a while i'm i'm really interested to watch it again but is it based on a real story well sort of the film's plot does revolve around a scientist's obsession with exploring altered states of consciousness through sensory deprivation and hallucinogenic drugs and it does uh, share similarities with a guy named john c Lilly and his research and experiences it's not technically based on him but it's pretty obvious they borrowed from from this guy's life. Lily of like Lily Drugs? This I do not know. Oh, okay. Never mind. John C. Lilly was an American physician, a neuroscientist, and a psychoanalyst. And his best-known research was on the nature of consciousness and his experiments with sensory deprivation and hallucinogenic drugs. Oh, no, that was Eli Lilly. My bad. He was born uh, in 1915 in St. Paul, Minnesota. He died in 2001 in L.A. He's regarded as one of the pioneers of consciousness research. And one of his most famous experiments involved the use of the deprivation tank, which he designed. I didn't realize this. He designed it in 1950. The tank was soundproof. It was lightproof. It was a chamber filled with warm water saturated with Epsom salts that allows a person to float effortlessly in water. The purpose of the tank is to eliminate all of the external sensory input, allowing the participant to focus on their internal experiences and thoughts. Now, I've done this. Yeah, it's a float. Yeah, it's a a float tank. The one I was in, uh, it was kind of cool. You got to uh, choose the music soundtrack if you wanted music mm-hmm. soundtrack and uh, one of the options was Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon so you know what I chose Britney Spears I imagine that only because Koyana Scotsy's soundtrack wasn't available oh my god that would have been perfect <laughs> Koyana Scotsy if you've never watched that watch it it's great watch it in a deprivation tank if, if you can uh, I think that 
defeats the purpose of a deprivation tank. <laughs> Lily conducted a series of experiments with this deprivation tank, and uh, he would ex- he would spend extended periods of time floating in the tank, sometimes up to 10 hours. Oof. He said he had a variety of experiences while in the tank. He had vivid hallucinations, uh, what he described as mystical experiences and encounters, he believes, with non-human entities. This was before he introduced psychedelic drugs into the mix. Oh, before the drugs? Yeah. Wow. He thought, geez, this might enhance my experiences and experiments with consciousness. And he used a bunch of different types of drugs, uh, LSD, uh, obviously, psilocybin, mushrooms, and ketamine. And he reported having intense and really often bizarre experiences while under their influence. Yeah. The idea of doing ketamine and getting into de- a deprivation tank is horrifying to me. But then again, so is the idea of an ayahuasca ceremony and everybody that I've talked to who has done it. And I've talked to three people that have. They're all like, yeah, it's scary, but it's life changing. I don't know. I don't think I could. Could you do an ayahuasca experience? I think I'd need to complete certain phases of my therapy first. <laughs> I, I feel that. <laughs> One of the most famous of Lily's psychedelic deprivation experiences involved a ketamine-induced trip in which he claimed to have encountered beings from another dimension. In his book, The Center of the Cyclone. I thought you said beans from another dimension. I was like, ooh, (laughs) I bet that's delicious. Like garbanzo beans? They're they're delicious beans, but you can't perceive what they really look like from a third-dimensional perspective. So his book was called The Center of the Cyclone, and Lily describes this experience as follows. Quote, I entered into what seemed to be another dimension, a region of strange and alien entities. They were, I sensed, the beings that inhabit the highest levels of consciousness, and they appeared to me in a variety of forms, some geometric, others organic, and others like machines. They communicated with me telepathically, and I sensed that they were trying to teach me something about the nature of the universe. Now, what is it about this kind of experience, not with this specific guy, only, but very often, people who trip real hard seem to think that they've had experiences outside of their own body Mm. or in another dimension or whatever. And for some reason, the answer to them is never, oh, I was just tripping real hard. (laughs) Well, I think that people like like this person and uh, like people like Aldous Huxley from his book, The Doors of Perception, which, by the way, the band The Doors took their name from, he came to believe that uh, the drug, the hallucinogenic that he took, was the key that unlocked the other dimension, that it was always there, but you can't perceive it. And and this kind of goes back to Carlos Castaneda kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Did you know, this is weird, when Huxley died, as he was dying on his bed, he um, insisted that they dose him with LSD. He wanted to be tripping as he died. Why not? I don't know, man. I don't know. I think probably dying is enough of an hallucinogenic experience. I don't know. (laughs) I want to dose myself. I mean, if I'm ever going to want to be high, it's probably when I'm kicking it. I don't know. Not me. If I'm lying on my deathbed, my my first thought is is not going to be, give me some peyote. 
Anyway, he says it was though he was being shot through a tunnel at an incredible speed. He then found himself in a completely different environment, which he described as a vast, dark and featureless void. This is from his other book, another one of his books called The Scientist. He he talked about this experience uh, a number of different times. He felt as though he was in a completely different environment from the physical world, and he experienced extremely intense visual hallucinations of complex patterns of light and color as well as geometric shapes and abstract forms that seemed to have no connection whatsoever uh, to the physical world. He believed that they were the result of his brain attempting to make sense of his sensory deprivation. He also saw geometric shapes and abstract forms that seemed to um, be communicating with him telepathically, that they were beings of uh, intelligence. As this experience progressed, he began to feel a sense of intense fear and panic. This is what I, I would be afraid right, of. Yeah. He felt as if he was losing touch with reality, and he feared that he would never be able to return to the physical world, that this was it. He was gone. Mm-hmm. The feeling of terror lasted for what was seemed like an eternity to him. And that reminds me of another book that I read by Mark Vonnegut, who was is Kurt Vonnegut's son. It was called Eden Express. Mm-hmm. And uh, he suffered from mental illness. And he lived on a commune back in the 60s in uh, northern British Columbia, I guess. And he did some acid one time on this commune. He was the guy that never came down. Well, he did ultimately, but it was like months and months and months. Yeah. And it just triggered some kind of a schizophrenic thing in his in his mind. It's a fascinating book. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. But this is what this guy feared, that he was tripping balls and he was never going to come back. Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel when I take Benadryl. <laughs> like, is this how I feel forever now? That's why I don't take Benadryl. Fortunately, as the ketamine began to wear off, Lily slowly returned to the physical world. He found himself back in the sensory deprivation tank. He was feeling disoriented and confused. However, he also felt a sense of awe and wonder, he said, at the intensity of the experience that he had just had. Now, using ketamine in a sensory deprivation tank in those days, in the 60s, um, well, kind of controversial. And he was criticized by the mainstream science and medical communities. But his experiments also inspired a whole generation of researchers to explore the nature of human consciousness and its relationship to the brain. So at the time, it seemed um, pretty outrageous and certainly controversial and dangerous and the mainstream scientific community really didn't want to give it any credibility, sure. but over time it has led to some pretty important discoveries. Now, question about the film. Was that kind of a Jacob's Ladder type thing where you weren't sure as a viewer what was really going on and what was just happening in their head? Was it's been so long since I've seen it, um, but the one thing that I do remember is he took these drugs, he got into a deprivation tank, and suddenly he was back on the African savanna as one of his earliest, earliest ancestors, that he had unlocked some kind of memory in his DNA. He was seeing through their eyes, uh, killing like a gazelle and eating the gazelle. And then he woke up from it in the tank and he had blood on his mouth. That's the one thing I can remember pretty clearly because mm. I went, whoa. 
It sounds like that scene in Defending Your Life when they're watching their previously reincarnated selves. Yeah, the uh, the past life pavilion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Despite all the controversy surrounding his work, Lilly remained extremely influential as a scientist and a researcher, and he made significant contributions to the field of neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy. His experiments with sensory deprivation and hallucinogenic drugs although highly controversial, have helped to expand our understanding of consciousness and its relationship to the brain. While Lily's claim of encountering beings from another dimension cannot be, you know, proven or scientifically verified, it's an important part of uh, his legacy and his experiences and his experiments, and they do continue to inspire further research into the nature, uh, nature of human consciousness. Right, even if he was just you know, high AF, and that's how he experienced being super high, that's still information. Yeah. I don't believe that he went into another dimension or whatever, but... You don't believe it or you don't want to believe it because it scares you. No, I don't believe it. Oh, but okay. then <laughs> that experience for him is still having learned something. And it was real to him. And, and that's kind of... Now we're getting down to what is the nature of reality. Right. Is it just what the majority of us agree is real? Yeah, I mean, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics sharing puzzling tales from the past, and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. And now, that thing in the middle. If you're thinking of moving to Japan, good news. There are lots of ways to make a living. But none more strange than this. In Japan... You can hire a handsome man to show up at your workplace. He'll then watch sad videos with you until you cry. And then gently wipe away your tears. For a small fee, of course. Cheyenne sent us a, uh, an email to curator at theboxofoddities.com. Kat and JG, I hope this message finds you well. My name is Shay, and I've been listening to you guys since 2019. I credit you all for the person I am today. 
I was a freak in the coolest way possible when I was young. After having a couple of babies like so many mothers out there, I thought I needed to put all of that behind me in order to be a stereotypical mom for my kids. And I was unhappy. After I found your podcast, it reminded me of who I was and to embrace it. I proudly wave my freak flag now, and my kids say, I'm the cool mom. Yeah. Any hoozle, I was listening to Box 418 on my way back from work about the strange medical conditions. Yes, I know I'm, I'm out of order. My, my life is a bit chaotic. Jethro was talking about a girl from Minnesota who could not feel pain. I knew this girl when I was younger. We went to swimming lessons together. She had to wear swimming goggles all the time as a little one so that she wouldn't injure her eyes. The second part of the episode, Kat talked about the Japanese penis festival. I should have learned by now to pause the podcast when I'm going through the drive-thru to get my morning <laughs> coffee. As soon as the barista opened the window, Kat yells, Japanese penis festival! <laughs> this girl's face turned bright red. Well, I guess I can never go there again. Anyway, thank you, Kat and JG, for all the laughs and knowledge I never knew I needed. Keep flying your, your freak flags. We will. And you keep flying yours. Thank you so much. Do you remember the episode where we talked about the cursed painting? Yes, the crying boy yes, painting. that's yeah. exactly right. We got a message from Hannah on Instagram on the post about the crying boy painting. That that was the one where whenever anybody bought the painting, their house burned down. That's right. Yeah, oh yeah. Hannah writes, my grandma still has this painting. When I was little, it used to upset me so much. <laughs> she had to take it out of the bedroom when we slept over. <laughs> I love that. It is disconcerting. Fortunately, not everybody who has owned a, a print of that has had their house go up in flames. Yes. But a surprisingly high number of people have. And the painting is the only thing that's not consumed by fire. That's so weird. So weird. So it was so weird when you started talking about a movie because today I'm talking about movies. Oh. And some weird things that have happened on movie sets that I hadn't heard of. And so I'm wondering maybe if it's new to you. Okay. I like where this is going. <laughs> Vera Farmiga was just starting to look into the experiences of Lorraine Warren and talk with James Wan about the possibility of signing on for the role of Lorraine in The Conjuring. Right. She said she had just finished a phone call with James when we said goodbye I opened my computer screen and there were three digital claw marks from the upper right diagonal to the lower left corner. Oh, shut up. Had never appeared before, never appeared after that time. So strange. Farmesia found herself mysteriously and repeatedly waking up between 3 and 4 a.m. while she was on set. The witching hour. The witching hour. It's jarring to note that in addition to being commonly known as the witching hour or the devil's hour, that the witch character in the film died during that witching hour. And the film supposedly based on real events that happened surrounding the Warrens. I moved into a house one time and for some reason, every morning at 3 a.m., the um, buzzer on the stove, the timer on the stove would go off. Always at 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. Did you think maybe I should reset that timer? Or? Well, I tried. No matter what I did, I made sure the, the timer was off. Mm -hmm. 
I made sure that it wasn't set anywhere near three o'clock. Right. And it still went off. Was it an avocado green stove? It was. Yes. It was avocado green. <laughs> I love that so often you see those avocado green stoves paired with the Harvest Gold refrigerator. Oof. And you really get this beautiful combo mm. of these muted colors. And I love a 70s kitchen. So It's very Brady's bunch. I love it. Very Brady bunch. What was I saying? Oh, yes. So a few months later, literally on the day oh, that... Oh, just to finish that story. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I threw the stove away. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. <laughs> on the day that Vera completed work on The Conjuring, she returned home to upstate New York. And the next day when she woke up, she had three claw marks across her thigh. Oh, my God. You've you've been waking up with... That's why, that's how I found this story is because I was Googling like, why do I keep waking up with claw marks on me? And I thought maybe, you know, there was some logical answer, but instead I found a bunch of spooky stories from movie sets. But yeah, I keep waking up with scratches all over me. Yeah, and in areas that you can't really reach yourself, we have no answer to this. Much like the saga of the avocado stove. But she wasn't the only one who had problems on The Conjuring set. Joey King, the actress who played Christine, one of the daughters, also apparently ended up covered in strange bruises Mm. after a couple of weeks of shooting, despite the fact that she was not involved in any of the character's stunts. They were very careful during the shooting because there were so many kids on set to make sure that none of the children were involved in stunts at all or even close to anything that that would create bruising like this. But it seems like there were issues during all of the Conjuring Universe films. Cast and crew on The Conjuring 2 said that set pieces and props moved around on their own. Wow. That crew members would go to their hotel at night and they would find demonic symbols from the set appear (sighs) in their rooms. Shut up. Like props from the movie? The same imagery would appear in their rooms. There were lots of strange accidents, and also crucifixes kept going missing. Hmm. And the first time the cast of Annabelle Comes Home, which, as you know, is part of the Conjuring universe as well, the first time they were all on set together, all of the lights on set went out. And they didn't come back until someone said, kind of joking, Annabelle, are you here? And then the lights all came back up. Oh, no. And 12-year-old McKenna Grace had a heavy nosebleed as soon as the lights came back up. You've been getting unexplained nosebleeds. I have been getting a lot of nosebleeds lately. They they calmed down once we moved to Florida, mm. but now they're they're back. I don't know what's going on. Scratches and nosebleeds. I am a mess. But you're adorable. Thanks. In addition, the piano seat in the artifacts room kept disappearing and moving around even though the set was locked at night. The production designer Jennifer Spence said that the props department kept coming up to her and asking if she had moved it, but they never worked out why it kept moving because she hadn't been moving it. She said, over the years, there have been things that creep me out about Annabelle, so I tend to stay away from her. Mm. It got so bad that they hired a security guard named Johnny, who also moonlights as a ghost hunter to keep an eye on things overnight. So they just have a ghost hunter slash security guard on set at night. Doing EVPs in the middle of the night. Probably. Wow. Did he find anything? Unclear. Now, the witching hour also got to actor Ryan Reynolds. 
along with other cast and crew members while working on the Amityville Horror. They would wake up at 3.15 every day. Hmm. And that happens to be the same time that Ronald DeFeo shot and murdered his family members. There are a lot of unexplained things about the Amityville Horror story. Mm. Uh, I think generally it's been accepted that it was a hoax perpetrated by the owners to get out of their mortgage and make a little bit of money. Uh, But there are a lot of things that just don't add up. And some strange photographs that were um, captured by Ed and Lorraine. Uh, Have you seen the one where the the toddler is looking out around the door frame? Let 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 me find that for you. Okay. I'm always down for evidence. The image was captured by a guy named Gene Campbell, who was a professional photographer and was part of the uh, team that Ed and Lorraine Warren had uh, had hired to investigate. Oh, yes, I have seen this. He's peeking out around the corner. Yeah, that's terrifying. Nothing scares me more than a than a toddler ghost, ghost babies. Right? I mean, you could have just stopped with toddler. Mm. I mean, I don't need no sneaky toddlers around. No. Scooching in corners. Setting off the alarm on my avocado-colored stove at 3 o'clock every morning. Yeah. There was also a series of inexplicable events that took place during the filming of The Possession. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is quoted in Screen Rant as saying that fluorescent lights would explode mid-take. There was never a problem with lights when they weren't filming, but once they started filming, lights would explode, and it was always during key scenes. And also, cold bursts of wind would sweep through the closed set, even though, obviously, on a closed set, no windows are open. They don't Mm. have, like, the big fans going or anything. That's why they call it closed. Exactly. Apparently, this actually led actor Jeffrey Dean Morgan to believe in the supernatural because of his experiences on this set. After production wrapped, a fire destroyed the crew's storage unit, and the fire department found no signs of arson or electrical causes. There was no reason that this fire would have just randomly started. And the imitation Dybbuk box that was in the movie, which contained the demonic spirit that possessed Emily, was among the items destroyed in the fire. Now, the family who owned a real Dybbuk box that the movie was based on, and they offered to let the movie producers use that Dybbuk box for the filming. But the producer, Sam Raimi, was like, nope. No, thank you. (laughs) Nah. I can picture him going, hmm, that's a great offer, but you know what? I think, no. (laughs) Click, nah. (laughs) Moving along. Police showed up on the set of Apocalypse Now in the Philippines, and they took all of the crew members' passports after discovering that real corpses were being used during the filming. What? So there was a row of corpses used as props hanging from trees and placed strategically around the temple set. Those were actual human corpses. The bodies were unidentified, so the authorities, finding out that these were real bodies, wanted to make sure that, well, first of all, where did these come from? Right. Is there a serial killer out here making movie props of our civilians? (laughs) Of our local population? No, thank you. It turns out that the person that the movie had been sourcing their props from was a grave robber who, in addition to selling to production teams, also sold stolen corpses to medical schools. They knowingly bought real corpses. 
They did. They bought the bodies for the sake of realism, but they did not know that they were buying stolen corpses. Where did they think they came from? I don't know. I don't know. This seemed like a really reputable corpse guy. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the set of Poltergeist, which yeah. we, we've mm. talked about before, there was not a pleasant place to be in addition to the creepy vibes that come with filming any horror movie i imagine um we may have talked about this the actor who played robbie was strangled by a clown on set the prop was designed to make it look like he was being strangled by an evil clown toy but it malfunctioned and started strangling him for real so steven spielberg had to pull the clown off of him joe beth williams the actor who played diane freeling didn't want to film the pool scene at the end of the movie things were already so weird on set so many things had gone wrong already. There are these big lights leaning over this open water. And she was like, no, I'm going to get electrocuted. I don't want any part of this. So Steven Spielberg got into the pool and was like, don't worry about it. See, if we're if we're both in here, then we're both going to get fried. And no one's going to let me get fried, right? So she agreed to do it, even though she was already feeling super weirded out. Joe Beth Williams wow. eventually reluctantly agreed to film in this end of the movie scene where she's swimming around in this pool with a bunch of skeletons. Yeah, that was terrifying. Yeah. But even worse, she didn't realize they were actual human bodies because production (sighs) deemed the fake ones to be too expensive. And they didn't... They didn't tell tell her. her. So she's floating around in this gross pool thing, fearing she's going to be electrocuted, and she's got decomp all over her. I, if it was me, as soon as I would have dried off, I would have um, immediately called my attorney and filed a suit. That seems completely reasonable to me. Now, this one's not a paranormal type experience, but I feel like it's very spooky nonetheless. James Cameron was working on Titanic, what was to be his last day on set. He was standing in the middle of the set that he'd been working on for weeks, and he all of a sudden couldn't find his way off the set. (laughs) He said he was feeling suddenly and very distinctly woozy. Well, they were filming at night in Shearwater, just across Halifax Bay, and the crew broke for lunch, which was around midnight. A local catering company had provided, among other options, chowder. Or as we say in New England, chowder. Now, there are mixed reports about what kind of chowder this was. Cameron says it was a muscle chowder. Bill Paxton is quoted as saying in 2015 that it was clam chowder, and the Halifax police report at the time determined that it was lobster chowder. Either way, it had PCP in it. Oh, I remember hearing about this. Somebody dosed the chowder. Yes. Soon, some people were laughing, some people were crying, some people were throwing up. And after getting everyone to the hospital, things were absolutely out of control. It's 1 a.m., cast and crew were running through the hospital hallways, jumping into other people's examination areas. People had a lot of energy. (laughs) Some were in wheelchairs, flying down the hallways. The set painter, Marilyn McCavey, told Vice, I mean, everyone was high. 
James Cameron was laughing while bleeding from the face after a crew member allegedly stabbed him with a pen. People were moaning and crying and wailing, collapsing on tables, on gurneys, on the floor. Thank God there was no deprivation tank involved because... Holy crap. Our topics really have a lot of similarities. Mm. The director of photography was leading a number of crew members down the hall in a very loud conga line. (laughs) Oh, no. After thinking that maybe for a bit it was some sort of weird food poisoning, um, didn't take them long to figure out it wasn't food poisoning, police arrived in a toxicology report that it was, in fact, PCP to blame, but it is still unknown who dosed the chowder, though some people say they know. But they're not saying anything. Well, no one was arrested for it. Only slightly less terrifying, we're going over to Tunisia. Now, the Tunisian desert was perfect for shooting scenes of Star Wars A New Hope, but the set was a ton of problems. Malfunctioning props and equipment. There was a rare rainstorm that hit the desert, causing delays in production. But no problems were as big, though, as nearly starting a war. (laughs) Tunisia has two neighbors, Algeria to the west and Libya to the east. And at this time, Libya was ruled by Gaddafi. Libyan border guards spotted this massive construct lumbering around in the desert. It looked very threatening. Well, it was a sand crawler, a huge treaded fortress used on Tatooine as transportation and shelter. (laughs) So the Tunisian government had to ask George Lucas to move his sand crawler away from the Libyan border during the filming because Libya mistook it for an army vehicle and threatened military action. Lucas obviously agreed to move the sand crawler to a less... um, threatening location and wrapped up filming a few days behind. But overall, the Star Wars thing worked out okay. As I said, not paranormal, but very, very scary. And that's it for scary things that happened on movie sets. Speaking of Apocalypse Now, in the early part of the movie where Martin Sheen is uh, having his breakdown, um, he shortly after that suffered a heart attack and they had to uh, fly him out and he now says that he thinks that uh that that movie set was cursed yeah a lot of things went wrong on that set yeah so what happens when you use stolen bodies (laughs) i got my information in addition to aforementioned sources junkie.com looper cinema blend cheat sheet and vanity fair appreciate you guys hanging out with us as always looking forward to visiting with you again next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2023 All rights reserved